that this book will rehabilitate Paddy Main and also reveal why Bill Sterling should be regarded as the father of British Special Forces and not his brother, David. Hello and welcome to the Aspects of History podcast. My name's Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and host. And today we have a truly myth-busting piece of history. For those interested in the Second World War, and in particular the SAS and its so-called founder, David Sterling, you're in for a treat. If you're not aware, then this is the time to start because once you've heard my guest Gavin Mortimer dismantle the fairy tale that's currently out there, you'll sound like an absolute expert on the subject. As you've heard at the top, David Sterling was not the founder, it was his brother Bill, and Paddy Main was the real star of the SAS. Gavin's book, The Phony Major, is out now, so do read this fantastic tale. Now I've changed the pod slightly, due to feedback, and now I'm making pods one extended episode, rather than chopping them into two. So coming up, I'm going to be speaking to Damien Lewis about Josephine Baker, the wonderful African-American performer and French resistance agent, Con Igledon, the best-selling historical fiction author on Pericles, Miranda Malins on the Civil War and Oliver Cromwell, and Gretchen Freeman on the Anglo-Irish Treaty of 1921. Links are in the show notes, so if you can subscribe, do give me a review. That would be so kind. I do hope you enjoy my chat with Gavin all about David Sterling and Paddy Main and the SAS. Gavin Mortimer, welcome to the podcast. And we're here to talk about David Sterling, the founder of the SES, or is he? Uh, the title of the book being David Sterling, the phony major, the life, times and truth about the founder of the SAS. So, Gavin, welcome. Pleasure to be here, Ollie. Thank you for the invitation. Great. So this is a legendary figure, uh, um, certainly in the uh, in the history of the SAS. But I'm just thinking some of our, our listeners may not be aware of, of who David Sterling is. And so it'd be great for you to just um, give a kind of maybe a brief breakdown of who he is and why he's no why he has the reputation he does up until the publication of this book. David Sterling is considered uh, to be one of the great guerrilla fighters in British military history. The man, as you said in your introduction, Nolly, who's credited with founding the Special Air Service, the SAS. And um, he has become a, yes, a legendary figure, a mythical figure. And as I explore and explain in the book, he is far from being the man of myth. He was a co-founder of the SAS. He was an ideas man, and uh, but he was not uh, he had neither the physique nor the temperament for uh, a regular warfare, um, nor the maturity. And he, uh, so of course that begs the question, well, why do we regard him in, in um, such a light now? Well, what he was, was he was very manipulative um, and he was a great networker and he was very cunning and skilled in uh, self-promotion. 
and uh, what he did, uh, this was not possible uh, in the 10 years after the war because Paddy Main was still alive. Uh, that's Robert Blair Main, better known as Paddy Main. Now, he is uh, certainly, in my opinion, the, the greatest guerrilla fighter of the world of World War II, British or otherwise. Um, uh, an Irish rugby, British Lions International before the war, and a man of uh, sublime agility, intelligence, ingenuity, athleticism, everything that David Sterling uh, wasn't but wished to be. Um, and that um, unfulfilled desire on the part of David Sterling uh, led him to become very embittered. He took his um, bitterness out on, on Paddy Main. And as a uh, really the uh, at the heart of the book is the dynamic between Paddy Main and, and David Sterling. And it was after the war, Paddy Main was killed in a car crash in 1955. And that was the moment that Sterling saw he could rewrite the history of the SAS to his advantage and to the disadvantage of Paddy Main. And that's what he did to great, great effect. So for our listeners who aren't aware of who Paddy Main is, and he and you've you've just given a great description of him, he he has this reputation amongst those in the know as a kind of rather a, a an overlooked figure. Um, he's from Northern Ireland. He's where, he's from where my mother is from, so I'm immediately um, sympathetic with him. <laughs> Plus, he as you say, an Ireland rugby international, but he. He's he won four DSOs, didn't he, during during World War Two? Correct, and he was the last of those DSOs. So he won a he was awarded a DSO, a Distinguished Service Order, in every theatre that he fought. So North Africa, um, Sicily and Italy, France in 1944, and then lastly uh, April the 9th, 1945. For that action, he was actually recommended for a Victoria Cross. And it went through the proper channels. It was one of the um, witnesses uh, was uh, a general, a Canadian general of the Armoured Corps, and uh, along with I think it was three SAS officers. So it met the criteria, um, and he rescued his men under heavy enemy fire who were trapped in the ditch. I, I was fortunate enough to speak to one of those men um, several years ago, Albert Youngman, and he obviously never forgot that moment and 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 told me in very dramatic uh, fashion how paddy in the back of a jeep driven by lieutenant scott roared down this country lane in germany um behind the the uh, vickers double with the twin vickers in the in the back of a jeep um and uh laying down suppressing fire the germans who were across the field in a barn and um he did that a couple of the times roared up and down this lane and then um, once he'd suppressed the German fire, he uh, um, got his men, there were half a dozen who were trapped in this ditch, um, brought them into the Jeep uh, and, uh, and led them to safety. So it, it, a supreme leadership and courage. And um, he, that was, that VC was denied. And as I say in the book, uh, I detect the hand of David Sterling. Uh, he was uh, a confidant of the prime minister, Winston Churchill, um, a friend of the royal family. David Sterling's mother was very well connected and was a friend of Queen Mary. Uh, and it's very odd how uh, this 
Paddy Mayne's VC was suddenly uh, downgraded to, to a DSO. But that's very much in, in keeping with Sterling, who, was, uh, who, as I said, was embittered and, and envious. Um, uh, and to answer your question, Ollie, uh, yes, uh, Paddy Mayne was someone who was made um, for this sort of warfare, for the SAS warfare. Um, uh, he was a brilliant sportsman, not just rugby, but a champion university boxer, a uh, very good cricketer. Um, and um, he he was just able to, he he was a half a yard ahead of the enemy in in um, both mind and body. He People I spoke to, veterans who, uh, who fought with me, told me that he just seemed to anticipate what the Germans were going to do in any given um, contact and was then uh, was therefore able to outwit them every time. And uh, he was a, a fearless man. Uh, he was a man who uh, was able to control his his fear and not just control it, but to, but to act with great presence of mind, uh, with a clarity of mind, utter composure um, in the most high pressured uh, situation. And this is why uh, I said earlier, it's, it's uh, I suppose it, it, one may say it, it's some it's some claim to say that he was Britain's greatest guerrilla fighter. Of course, always hard to, to measure these uh, such um, uh, descriptions. But but in my opinion, he was uh, and he was also a great leader of men. And from from the very start of the SAS's formation in the summer of 1941, he was a psychological leader. Sterling was the was the leader in rank, but it was it was Maine to whom the the men looked up to, who who, who inspired them and who gave them uh, the the courage and and, and yes the inspiration uh, in in action. So David Sterling certainly sold himself as having founded the SES, and and it, and it's a little bit of a complicated story actually I find as a coming from it cold because you have the long range desert group you have uh five commando i think it was um correct me if i'm wrong and and then out of out of those groups there's a, a training center run by david sterling's brother bill and out of that uh they they moved to and i know you're going to describe it a lot better but out of those kind of elite groups the sas is is formed could you just talk a little bit about how the sas is is formed yeah certainly to go back you mentioned bill sterling there who is the other marginalized figure even more so in in a way than than paddy main because people are aware of paddy main um but um very few people are um, aware of, of Bill Sterling's contribution to the SAS. And if you if you pick up a general history of the SAS and go to the index, you'll see Bill Sterling will have a, a couple of pages listed, indexed next to his name. Um, and yet really, as I say in the book, it's, it's Bill who is the father of British Special Forces, not just the SAS. So why do I say that? Well, in April 1940, Operation Knife was launched. This was a six-man operation to go to Norway, which was um, had recently been invaded by the Germans, and to coordinate with Norwegian partisans in sabotaging um, railway lines south of Bergen. And one of those, one of the six men, Bill Sterling, who at the beginning of 1940 had joined military intelligence research 
FMIR, which was the forerunner of the Special Operations Executive, better known uh, as SOE. And the, they set off uh, at the end of April 1940 from Rosslife in Scotland to Norway, but halfway across the, the submarine hit a surface mine and they were forced to return to Scotland. The submarine, uh, they, a, new, a new submarine was required. Bill Sterling said, well, come on, let's go back to my place and, and wait until the, the new submarine is found. Uh, the new submarine uh, was never, the, the, the operation was, uh, was abandoned because of a situation in Norway with the Allies withdrawing from Norway. Bill Sterling, um, the, the Sterling family I mentioned earlier were aristocratic. Bill, the, the eldest of six siblings, was the laird, um, Archib General Archibald Sterling, uh, who had fought in the, the South African War of 1899 to 1902 in the First World War. He had died um, just a few months before Bill turned 21. So at a young age, he inherited land, money, and power. And again, this is this is uh, integral to the story. Sorry to there is a lot of class in this story, isn't there? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely, there is a lot class it's i mean soe at at the time and in fact the british military in general particularly the army was very much an old boys network mdr foot who is the soe historian said that soe was formed uh, on the on the basis of not just military connections the old boy network but city connections so you would have the extraordinary uh, case of, of people being employed by soe um, purely because they work for the right bank in the city, no military experience. So it was like that. And of course, the Stirlings were one of the most influential uh, landowning families in Scotland. Um, the, the, the mother, the Honourable Mrs. Stirling, um, who was the daughter of the 13th Lord Lovett. So we've got another family connection there with Lord the, the Lovetts. Um, the 15th Lord Lovett was, of course, um, the, the great commando officer, the cousin of David and Bill Sterling. He um, appears in he, he appears in the longest day. Sorry, I keep on interrupting you, so you can tell me off. But it, yes, it, he keep he appears in the longest day uh, with a bagpipe uh, in a in a exactly, white Poland right. sweater. Exactly, but he was a CO of Number Four Commando, who came uh, ashore uh, on D-Day and then. Um, marched inland a few miles to the uh, to Pegasus Bridge and uh, to, to hold the, the bridges until the arrival of the main uh, British infantry. And um, so so that's right. So so the class does come into it. Now, Bill Sterling was, uh, I, I suppose, because he from an early from from age 20, he he became laird of, of Keir, which is the Sterling estate, so not just outside Dunblane in central Scotland. He had the common touch. He was uh, uh, he was equally um, skilled at talking to um, princes and prime ministers as he was his uh, garden staff, his domestic staff. Uh, David Starling, David Sterling was not. He was um, a snob. He was uncomfortable outside the upper class. Didn't really know how to relate. Uh, to the working class, because of course he was not used to uh, that environment. He had gone from uh, he went to a prep school at Ampleforth, the Yorkshire boarding 
school and then he went from there to to Cambridge for three terms he wasn't a success at Cambridge um, so he'd never he'd never had a proper job so to speak before the outbreak of war um, anyway to go back to, to to Bill Sterling so in 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 April it's April 1940 the first I suppose SOE operation knife had ended in failure but what it had taught the six men particularly bill and it was bill sterling who recognized this was how inadequately they had been prepared for this irregular warfare he'd actually taken his gilly his gamekeeper on the submarine because he was skilled in the art of stalking of moving quickly and quietly across a rough terrain because they hadn't been taught this so bill sterling said to the other five i think we 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 should set up uh, a guerrilla warfare school and he using his connections he pitched this idea in may 1940 to the war office he went down to london um uh, fortuitously winston churchill had just replaced chamberlain as prime minister churchill had always been from his days uh, as a reporter in in the boer war in the turn of a century um a, a fan of a regular warfare he'd seen how um, superbly the Boers had used it against the British and so Bill's idea for a guerrilla warfare came at just the right time he was authorized to set it up um, by this time he brought on board Lord Lovett his cousin um, who said well I can I've got my land in the northwest of Scotland which is ideal for guerrilla warfare it's got lochs it's got the sea it's got mountains it's got uh, moorland perfect for for um for what we have in mind so uh june the 3rd 1940 the special training center was opened bill sterling was the chief instructor along with lord lovett and he brought on board it was extraordinary some of the some of the most uh the, the leading experts in their field so for example you had the 1924 olympic shooting gold medalist um and you had uh, Jim Gavin, who was an expert, had been on the 1936 um, uh, Everest expedition. You had Freddie Spencer Chapman, who had been was an Arctic explorer and was a, a, actually a schoolmaster at Gordonston at the outbreak of war, among whom one of his pupils was uh, later the Duke of Edinburgh. Uh, Mike Calvert, a, a sapper, a demolitions expert. So all these people came together. And throughout the summer of 1940 and the autumn of 1940, they taught hundreds of uh, new of, of a new commando officers and uh, NCOs on a, on a two week course, um, giving them a thorough grounding in, in guerrilla warfare. And uh, one of the one of the recruits was David Sterling, and he then subsequently joined number eight commando guards commando and uh, that was very much comprised of of the of the upper class and then in 19 uh, January 1941 a new force as you said it is a bit confusing Ollie a new force uh, was raised lay force under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Robert Laycock and this lay force was comprised of three commando troops number eight commando which was David Sterling's Number seven commando, uh, which was generally infantry made up of uh, volunteers from infantry regiments, and 11 Scottish commando. And in number 11 Scottish commando was Paddy Main. And the three of them sailed to the Middle East at the end of January 1941, 
with the expectation of launching amphibious raids against the Italians in uh, North Africa. But of course, by the time they got there, the Italians had been joined by Rommel's Africa Corps, and this completely changed the complexion of the war in North Africa. And just to bring it up to, to sort of the, the, the um, beginning of the SAS, throughout the summer of 1941, there were a series of, of aborted raids. Um, frustration grew. And in June 1941, lay force was disbanded. And the intention was to return the, the volunteers to their parent regiment. And this is when the SAS uh, was formed. You mentioned the Long Range Desert Group, very important to this story. And uh, they were the pioneers of British special, uh, British special Forces in World War II, mainly concerned with reconnaissance. They were formed at Ragnold in June 1940, and they uh, did extraordinary work in mapping the interior of the Libyan desert. Bagnold in the 1920s had been a regular army officer and um, had been the first white man to, to penetrate to the, to the heart of the Libyan desert, to places like Kufra and Siwa Oasis. And, um, and so they were, they were considered the, the kings of the desert and the, as I said, the pioneers of British special forces warfare in, uh, in uh, up until the creation, I suppose, of the SAS in uh, August 1941. Now, what's quite interesting in the book is during this period when the Long Range Desert Group are, are doing all their operations, David Sterling, he, he seems to have secured um, a flat in Cairo and is, is frequenting the bars of, of Cairo. It seems like quite a, a nice life uh, for a, 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 um, a special forces soldier. Well, that's right. He was um, Evelyn War, by the way, was as a name I didn't mention. He was also an, an officer in uh, in um, uh, lay force, and uh, he he described Sterling and the other upper class officers as the smart set, and they would um, really had a had a great time in the in the summer of 1941 in Cairo, gambling. There was a race course. There was a uh, several very um, high class establishments. Be they brothels or bars or cafes, one of the most um, uh, popular uh, places for officers was the terrace of a shepherd's hotel. And um, it was quite incestuous, I suppose, in a way. And um, and that's right. Peter Sterling, he was the uh, second of the four Sterling brothers. There was Bill, Peter, David and Hugh. Hugh was killed on active service in North Africa in um, the spring of 1941. Peter was probably the most gifted, certainly intellectually, of the four Sterling brothers. And he was a secretary at the British Embassy in Cairo and had a flat uh, in, the, uh, in the swankiest area of, uh, of the Egyptian capital. And, um, um, and Bill and Bill and David, Bill Sterling was also out in uh, Cairo in 1941 with SOE uh, and the three of them really set up home and and they had some wild parties at uh, at their uh, flat and it was a rather um, dissolute lifestyle I suppose the, the war would become a little bit static and and as I said lay force the reason that the commandos were out there was in the process of being disbanded there was this inertia 
out there. And so out of that comes the SAS. Now, David Sterling, as a Scots Guards officer, which he what he was at the beginning of a war, had acquired a reputation for being supremely lazy. Um, the giant sloth, he was, he was nicknamed. He gambled, um, he drank a lot. He went to nightclubs in London when he was based at the Guards Depot, and he really didn't take soldiering very seriously. So one of the one of the great, I suppose, puzzles for me, having written about the the SAS um, for a number of years, is how did such a character come to to if the myth is to be believed, this extraordinary guerrilla fighter? Well, let me introduce you to Bill Sterling, because as I said, he had gone out to Egypt at the same time as. Uh, David Sterling and this lay force commando force. He'd gone out there with um, uh, SOE on something, the Yak mission. Now this was codenamed for an operation where they were. Uh, the, the 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 hope was to raise an anti-fascist um, battalion of, of of Italians from among the captured POWs. But the, the Italians were utterly apathetic. They were quite pleased to be uh, captured. They said, no, 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 thanks. We, we, we want to uh, sit out the rest of the war as, as POWs. So Bill then uh, was became very disillusioned with SOE in Cairo and got a job as the, um, the best way of describing it is the private secretary to Lieutenant General Arthur Smith, who was the chief of the general staff and answered to uh, Wavell, who was Commander-in-Chief, Middle East, Archibald Wavell. So, you know, Bill was at the heart of Middle East headquarters. And what Bill had seen um, very early on in the North African campaign was the, the, the long-range desert group were, were doing great things with their reconnaissance, but there was an opportunity for a guerrilla force to operate deep in the desert behind enemy lines. And drawing on his experience of 1940 and of um, raising the, the special training centre, the Guerrilla Warfare School in Scotland, um, he suggested to David uh, that this force, that there was potential for this force. And um, together, the two of them drafted uh, a plan for a small airborne unit to parachute behind enemy lines and attack the um, particularly uh, German-Italian airfields. And so it was Bill Sterling, obviously he had fear of, of uh, General Smith and Wavell who handed over this proposal and it was accepted, they saw validity and um, uh, uh, David Sterling or, or the two Sterlings were authorized to raise a unit of six officers and 60 men. And Bill Sterling by this time was uh, in his 30s. He, he considered himself too old to, to lead it himself. But David, in his mid-20s, was, was very much, uh, was, was enthusiastic. David was physically brave and he was desperate to, to find a role for himself, to come out of a shadow of Bill and also his mother, who, who was, um, I suppose, an alpha female. And, um, and really, before the war, David had been what was known in the, the vernacular of the time as a lounge lizard, a bit of a waster, a bit of a loafer, a quitter. 
And um, so, so Bill really encouraged David. So and, he, and this he, is the key, so he, really, isn't it? This is sorry to interrupt again, but this is the key, isn't it? This is where Bill is is the is the is the main driver, and David is kind of looking for a direction in life. Absolutely, absolutely. That's a good way of putting it. Bill took, as he had throughout his life, Bill took David under his wing. I think Bill recognised uh, he was a very intelligent man, a very perceptive man. I think he recognised David's character flaws, his immaturity, his insecurity, his impatience, his, his inability to, to, to see a task through. He was very uh, imaginative, David, um, but he would get impatient if things didn't um, uh, go away straight away. So, um, so, so Bill took David under under his wing, and um, the, I mean, the, the joke was in the early days throughout the war that SAS stood for Sterling and Sterling because the, the two of them had, had founded it together, and and there's plenty of evidence of this. Um, Roy Farron, who was one of the great SAS, he was a uh, in two SAS, the regiment formed by Bill Sterling in May 1943. He, in his 1948 memoir, which I highly recommend, Wing Dagger, refers to um, the, the, the co-founders of the SAS, David and Bill. And Charles Johnson, who was um, worked at the British Embassy alongside Peter Sterling, wrote a memoir um, in the 1960s. Uh, and, and he describes living, He for a time, he shared a flat with the Sterlings um and says what a wonderful experience that was but again describes the SAS as the brainchild of Bill and David um and so Bill took a, a back seat but nonetheless his influence his fingerprints are over the SAS how well look at the composition of the six officers um recruited in the summer of of 1941 um one of them was Charles Bonington now, Charles Bonington was the only one among the six who was not a commando officer. And it, for, for many years, it, it intrigued me. How come Charles Bonington, Charles Bonington, by the way, was the father of the great British mountaineer of his generation, Chris Bonington. Um, but it, how on earth did, did this chap come to be in the SAS as an officer when, when the others, McGonagall, Fraser, Paddy Main, David Sterling and Jock Lewis, had come from the commandos, from lay force. And one thing I discovered in researching the Sterling biography was that because um, Charles Bonington had enlisted in 1939 as an infantryman in the Australian Imperial Force and then had been commissioned in early 1941 once he'd been in the Middle East. Well, the answer to that question is that uh, Charles Bonington was a good friend of Bill Sterling's at Ampleforth. They were in the same year together and they were the, the, the outstanding pupils in their year. So that's how um, Charles Bonington came to be recruited. They obviously bumped into one another in Cairo, possibly on the terrace of, uh, of Shepherd's Hotel over a uh, John Collins cocktail or perhaps gambling at the race course. But anyway, Bill Sterling um, suggested to to Charles that the um, he might like to join the uh, the SAS. Now the other the evidence that it was Bill Sterling who recruited the officers is Paddy Main. Paddy Main had, um, as I said earlier, had joined a number eleven Scottish Commando, subsequently Lay Force. They had taken part in the only worthwhile 
operation in the Middle East in 1941, and that was the um, battle for uh, Latani River in Syria, when they come ashore, and um, after some a fairly uh, brief but bloody engagement, they'd secured the bridge from the Vichy, uh, Vichy uh, to hold it for the advance of the main uh, Australian division that was landing. And um, um, but the the second in command of the number 11 Scottish commando was a chap, uh, Major Geoffrey Keyes, who, like David Sterling, was an aristocrat and like David Sterling, was not cut out for commando warfare. Highly strong, uh, entitled, arrogant, physically brave. And uh, indeed, he would win a Victoria Cross uh, in late 1941 for a rather um, uh, brave but um, fairly uh, shambolic and poorly organised attempt to kidnap um, Rommel in, in, from his headquarters in, in Libya. Uh, shocking intelligence, uh, Rommel wasn't there. And anyway, he was, he, uh, Keyes was killed. But Keyes and, and Maine just did not see eye to eye. And, and Maine... Uh, had a did not like the British upper class and he uh, confronted Keyes in the mess and it, legend has it that he punched Keyes but he didn't he just as if he were on the rugby field he fended him off and sort of gave him a mild push and told him to get out of here but anyway that was enough to uh, to to lead to his leaving uh, the commando uh, Scottish commando and he was he wasn't in the glass house. He wasn't under arrest. Another common misconception. Uh, he was simply waiting. Uh, he'd, he'd applied for a transfer to the Far East to to link up with Mike Calvert, who was um, who would later be the brigadier of the uh, of the SAS in 1945. And at the time was was teaching uh, jungle warfare in the Far East. But instead, Bill Sterling came and had heard of of Maine's fighting reputation, probably knew him pre-war. Bill Sterling was a rugby fan. Bill Sterling invited Blair Maine to too many bees um, to, to join the SAS. He accepted and, um, and unfortunately he did because I think as I write in the book, without the, the first SAS raid in November 1941 was an unmitigated disaster. Uh, 34 of the 55 men who parachuted into Libya to attack a series of German and Italian airfields were either killed or captured, only 21 returned, one of whom was, was Paddy Main. And had Paddy Main been killed or captured in that first raid, I've no doubt whatsoever that the SAS would have been disbanded and we would not have heard of them today. Well, this is what uh, comes across in the book, which I found um, quite it's quite funny the way you write about it. The methods that are used by the uh, two men, Paddy Maine and David Sterling, are, are it's it's almost as if Paddy Maine seems to come up with a sort of ruthless execution of a of a very good plan, and David Sterling's attempts are sort of almost copying him, but bungling his way through uh, North Africa. Um, at one point stumbling across a couple of sleeping Italian sentries and, 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 and mistakes like that, which which are in complete contrast to the story, to the myth that um, you described at the beginning, you know, with David Sterling being this um, brilliant guerrilla fighter. Uh, it's, you know, the, the, the 
the the gaping chasm between the reality and the uh, and the and the uh, and the and the legend is is amazing. Well, that's right, and I think that's one one way. A question that people are entitled to ask is, well, uh, Gavin, you've been writing about the SAS for the wartime SAS for nigh on twenty years. Why why now? And um, it's it's because it's I've matured as a writer and and as a as a man. I was in my late twenties when I started, and and it, I liken it to being confronted with a giant jigsaw puzzle with all the pieces jumbled up and I've it's taken me a long time to assemble the pieces and part of that uh, Ollie is quite right is is going back into the particularly the Phantom Major which was a book written by Sterling co- co- collaboration with Virginia Cowles who was a, an American society author who was very um she was rather sycophantic to the British upper class and she did a wonderful job of portraying Sterling as this, as the archetypal British, I suppose the the buccaneer of of Elizabethan legend of the eight, or 16th century of you know the, the 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 Drake, the Raleigh, the the going around the world and laying waste to Spanish galleons, etc. Um, with with you know with good humour and and English pluck and uh, etc. And and yet, when you actually go back to the operation reports, to what has been written, uh, touched on briefly in other books, is the the bungling nature of Sterling. So it took Sterling six months to to bag any planes, in other words, to blow anything up worthwhile. Paddy Main, meanwhile, on um, once after the the disaster of the first raid in November '41, that's when the the SAS um, partnered with the Long Range Desert Group. The Long Range, Long Range Desert Group would drive them in their back of their Chevrolet or their Ford trucks to within walking distance of the of the target, and the SAS would then go in on foot and plant their bombs um, on the aircraft, and and then withdraw to the pre-arranged rendezvous with the Long Range Desert Group. Uh, on the first raid of of, of that type. Paddy Main and five men destroyed 24 aircraft and then kicked. They saw a, a thin strip of light. You have to imagine that everything was pitch darkness. Um, and they, and upon further investigation, this was the door of a of a mess of a, uh, a German air uh, squadron. Um, Paddy Main kicked open the door, and um, there, looking up at him, were the faces of uh, a couple of dozen German aircrew. Absolutely bemused at this giant man standing before them, and and um, Paddy Mayne in his quiet, soft Irish brogue said good evening, and then opened fire, and um, which was uh, very effective. That's what guerrilla warfare is. It's not only uh, uh, destroying uh, the enemy materially and 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 the men, but it's also sowing sowing fear and alarm into the enemy, particularly when they're when they think they are miles behind, they are safe, that they are miles from the enemy. Um, and um, in, on that same night, David Sterling uh, fell into a slit trench containing two Italian sentries and was chased off his airfield at CERT. Two weeks later, um, Maine returned to the same airfield, this time destroyed 27 aircraft. Sterling returned to the same airfield 
and this time wandered into a, a minefield. When one of his men, Johnny Cooper, realised they were in a minefield, he um, whispered, uh, tell the boss that we're in a minefield, and this was passed up to Sterling. Upon hearing that they're in a minefield, Sterling stood up and in a loud voice saying, what's that? What's that you say, minefield? And uh, the Italian sentry started firing. So this is what we're dealing with here. Um, and so what did Sterling do? Well, at the beginning of 1942, he appointed Paddy Main the, the training officer. They'd got some new recruits, a detachment of 50 Frenchmen. And um, but that, that was really that uh, absurd thing to do. It, it's like having your 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 leading goal scorer in a football team and putting him on putting him on the subs bench. Um, you have him out front scoring goals. But David Sterling was already envious of, of, of Paddy Main. And he wanted to be the big man. Uh, and unfortunately, it just wasn't within his capability. So he went on a raid to Borat, um, a port that ended in disaster. Two months later, he went to Benghazi, uh, similar, similar result. So he was forced to, 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 get, to get Main back scoring goals in other words destroying aircraft which he did with uh with ease and um what this the, the outcome of this was that sterling withdrew um even more from the sas i mentioned earlier that he'd he shared a flat with um his two brothers bill sterling incidentally had been summoned back to the uk at the beginning of november 1941 two weeks before that inaugural operation I've no doubt that if Bill Sterling had still been in Cairo, um, because they were warned, Sterling was warned of this impending storm. Um, and that's the reason I, I, I overlooked that point earlier. The reason that that first raid was a disaster was because it coincided, unfortunately, with one of the heaviest um, storms in, in a generation in that part of North Africa. Um, Sterling was given the chance to abort, but he was by nature a gambler. Uh, throughout his military career, he was willing to gamble with the lives of his men, something which Paddy Main was not. And um, uh, had Bill Sterling been there in Cairo, I've no doubt that he would have said, no, uh, let's abort the operation far better. I know it's frustrating, but far better uh, the risk for lives of, of your men. And um, so, so as Sterling withdrew even more, intimidated um, by Paddy Main, overpowered by Paddy Main, psychologically, emotionally, um, he he just really lived in Cairo and he led the life of, of the dandy, and uh, he surrounded himself. And what that led to was his recruiting to the SAS, in effect, his friends. So you had Randolph Churchill, not a guerrilla fighter. Fitzroy McLean, very courageous man, did some wonderful work uh, behind the lines in Yugoslavia, but not, again, not a, an SAS officer. George Jellicoe, um, in, in contrast, was a brilliant, a brilliant officer um, who would uh, lead the Special Boat Squadron in, in 1943 and 1944 with great skill and, and courage. But it was he rarely went to Kabritz, which was where the SAS were based, 80 miles east of, of Cairo. And it was he, he, he started to go on these increasingly um, absurd adventures. And it, and it, the war became um, 
almost a game to, to Sterling. And he was very lucky to, to escape with his life uh, until, of course, in, in January 1943, he, he was captured. And, and interestingly, one of you, I, I quote a letter in the book from, from Bill Sterling to their mother, where he expresses his relief that David is, is he's captured, but he's alive because he, as he says to his mother, he, he was, you know, he was becoming ever more um, adventurous. And um, in really what he was becoming was he was taking more and more risks, not just with his own life, but with the lives of his men under his command. Which he, I guess he continues to do throughout his, throughout his, um, his, his military career. When, he's rather a, um, a sad figure uh, when in, captive, in captivity. He is homesick, isn't he? Which um, shows a side of him, I guess, that we're not really aware of, and um, at least I certainly wasn't aware of. No, I mean he wasn't. Um, he wasn't just homesick in as a POW, uh, Ollie. He was. He, he wrote to his what most fascinating glimpses into the character of Sterling is that um, in November, just on the on the eve of that inaugural SAS operation, he wrote to his mother and he said to her. Uh, really, probably along with Bill, the only person that he could reveal his true side. Um, I haven't been this homesick, this homesick since I was at Ampleforth. And um, of course, Bill wasn't there. Bill had just been had just returned to, to England. And this, that's right. And, and that's why I, I do have a degree of sympathy for Sterling. He was a sensitive mm. man, he had an artistic side. Um, he was deeply insecure. He, uh, before and after the war, really rather aimless. Uh, he didn't know what to do with his life. And he, the, the war gave him a meaning. And, the essay, and I think this is why, why Bill Sterling encouraged him so much, because he wanted to give David a purpose in life. And he saw that taking command of a, of a, of a special forces unit would perhaps focus his mind uh, and it did for a while but as i said he was he he then was confronted with with paddy main the natural leader and so he once more became this this diffident um immature uh, and an uncertain boy really and um uh, that was that again showed itself in as a POW. So how did he try and mask these insecurities? Well, like so many insecure people, by a, a, an exaggerated cockiness, bravado, even arrogance, I know best, listen to me. And he, he had this swagger with him and, and this side of his character, which coupled with his immense height, he was six foot four and a half, and not particularly broad, but, but uh, and he had this penetrating stare, was quite intimidating. And, and I've spoken to several people who said that he had this way of looking at you and making you feel that you were so important and that what he was asking of you, he didn't bark orders, but really he needed you to do this for, for him, for, for king and country. And it was hard to resist him. And, um, and, and one of the words is, um, that frequently comes up among the officer class 
Fitzroy McLean, Jellicoe, David Lloyd Owen, who later commanded the Long Range Dance Group, very distinguished men in their own right, is I fell under his spell. And this is the thing with, with Sterling. He, he was, he had this strange charisma that, of course, didn't work in his big brother, didn't work in his mother, and didn't work on, on Paddy May. They, they saw him for what he was, which is this insecure, immature, rather frightened young man. And I think more than anything, David Sterling wanted to be respected by Paddy May. Um, but uh, Paddy Main didn't have much respect for, for Sterling because he, he saw through him. Yeah, he comes across as a sort of consummate professional. But one area that Paddy Main has been accused of over the years, and I suspect you're going to tell me the origin of the, these, uh, uh, these kind of accusations, is, is that he, he would um, like alcohol, get drunk and then start fighting. Now, that's not necessarily a fair depiction of Paddy Main, is it? No, it's not. He, he liked to drink, um, but he was very, as I said earlier about Paddy Main, he, was, he had great control uh, under fire. He could control himself. And these, in recent years, there's been insinuations and suggestions that he went into battle fortified by drink. Absolute nonsense. I've spoken to many veterans who, who fought with, with Paddy Main throughout the war and, and none of them ever remembered him um, drinking and operations in the mess. Yes, he had some. He, had, he was. Uh, uh, well, I mean, he was a rugby player, for goodness sake. So he, uh, he could neck the beer and, uh, and uh, but, but he was very disciplined in when to drink and when not to drink. And of course, he wasn't alone in that. You know, it's I mean, um, it was uh, there was alcohol has traditionally been a, there's been some good nights in the sergeant's mess and the officer's mess down the centuries um and um but he's this is all part of as, as i said in the last 30 or 40 years the years these these nasty snide insinuations that have emerged um about paddy Main that he was uh, misogynistic that he was homosexual that he was a drunk that he was brutal um, that he was um, a very unhappy uh, man. They're they're just not true. And um, he was very well, very very balanced. And, and one thing um, that uh, one thing that people must remember is that he, unlike Sterling, who before the war, as I mentioned, was a, a loafer and a quitter, Paddy Main was anything but. So he was not only playing rugby for Ireland and the British Lions, going on a, a four-month tour to South Africa in 1938, where incidentally he played in, it was 21 of the 24 games, extraordinary durability, he was a star performer, the only player that the South African media, British player, an Irish player, raved about. Uh, he second was rower, wasn't he a second rower? Second, Sorry. Second row, yeah, probably, probably today he'll be in the, uh, the back row. He was about six foot two, 15 and a half stone, um, but very athletic, and um, um, uh, he was a champion. He was a heavyweight boxing champion of, of Ireland, and lost in the final of the British University's uh, heavyweight division. But he was a qualified solicitor. He was a very intelligent man. And um, in, uh, when he was at Queens in Belfast, he was elected onto the student council. Uh, so you know that that's an, an accolade that shows you how much he was respected by his his peers. That he wasn't just a um, uh, an athlete. He was a he was an intellect too. 
And yet to read some of the descriptions in Maine, uh, and I have to say some of them are come from David Sterling. Uh, they began in the 1980s when Sterling really began to, uh, as I say in the book, he actually began to, to still Maine's valour and still his character. So that by the end of Sterling's life, he was Paddy Maine and Paddy Maine was Sterling, this uh, narcissistic, misogynistic, insecure, depressive. Uh, that's David Sterling. It's not, uh, it's not Paddy Maine. Um, and, uh, and unfortunately, um, this, this now has become common currency, um, I would say, that it's, uh, you, it's rare to read about Paddy Main these days, about someone, you know, a description of him as a, a psychopath, a misfit, uh, a gangster and, and other such nonsense. Absolutely. I, I, the raid that you describe where he opens the he sees the shaft of light and says, good evening. That's something straight out of James Bond. Um, now, incidentally, can I, just, can I just add something to that, actually, uh, Ollie, which I think is quite important because that that was used in the 90s. That has been used by Sterling himself, actually, in when he collaborated with a book uh, about uh, Rogue Warrior of the SAS written in the 1980s. And he said that um, he described Maine as callous and he was referring to that incident. Now, there's nothing callous about it. That's what guerrillas do. You kill the enemy. And um, uh, but what that overlooks is what David Sterling did himself a few months later. at I think it was uh, Benina uh, Airdrome when he uh, desperate to, to emulate Paddy Maine, kicked open the door of a, uh, it was actually, it was a, a, a sleeping quarter and asleep in the bunks were a dozen or so German aircrew and Sterling rolled in a grenade and along with share this among you. Uh, now, what's more callous, killing sleeping men or as Paddy Main did saying good evening and then opening fire. And as I say in the book, Paddy Main, yes, he was, he was, uh, uh, he was clinical in, in, in combat, but when he took a man's life, he looked him in the eyes. Sterling rolled in a grenade as men slept. So for Sterling, now, of course, you could say, well, again, you know, Sterling, they, they are, that's guerrilla warfare. They were, they, were killing, uh, they were killing the enemy as well as destroying their aircraft. But for Sterling to, to accuse Maine of being this cold-blooded killer when he himself had done something like that is um, hypocritical. So um, I want to move on to Sterling after the war, because um, it, it, it's the story gets continues to be interesting well after the war. And this is where he really makes the uh, SAS into a, well, I, I, almost a mercenary force um, and, and solidifies the SAS in, in the minds of, um, well, I guess within the military, they weren't necessarily famous outside of, of the army then. Um, but yeah, could you talk a little bit about what he did in the 1960s with the SAS? Yeah, certainly. He was, um, um, he, he tried to launch a, um, something called the Capricorn Africa Society in 1949, which was rather uh, a vague idea of, of trying to uh, it was a sort of benign colonialism in, in Southern Africa. Anyway, it, it failed. And so he was, again, uh, yeah, I keep coming back to, the, to this word, lost, aimless. Um, so what does he do? 
Well, in the 1960s, he begins to dabble in, in what would, we would describe as um, mercenaries. And um, he, uh, at the time in the Yemen, this is 1963, the, the, um, the royalists were battling Egyptian-backed Republicans. And this was at a time when Britain was, uh, uh, you, you had Nasser in Egypt and, and um, they, were, they were increasingly concerned about the spread of, of socialism, communism within the Middle East and Africa. So Sterling saw an opportunity to, um, to enrich by uh, providing the, the Yemen royalist uh, forces with mercenaries and this is what he did using his SAS contacts and um, uh, three three troopers from the uh, 2-2 SAS um, were actually spirited out of Britain um, to take part in, in uh, a, a guerrilla operation against uh, Egyptian aircraft and um, uh, this was this was done uh, initially, the British government sort of turned a blind eye, but then it, it erupted uh, uh, at the same time as Sterling was formulating this plan, the Profumo affair um, broke and uh, with John Profumo and, and the, uh, and the um, uh, Christine Keeler and a huge scandal at the time, the, the Conservatives um, were, were desperate to avoid any more um, uh, unwanted publicity, so uh, they ordered Sterling to to scrap his operation. He just ignored them. Sterling was in the habit of of ignoring people. He, during the war, he ignored a, an order from Mountbatten to to return from uh, Cairo to London. If he if he didn't want to obey an order, he would simply ignore it. And so, um, and he was. Throughout the 60s, he was in, involved in, in other deals, uh, one with the, uh, the Saudi government, all of which made him um, quite a rich man. But of course, um, brought the, the um, in Libya in, after Colonel Gaddafi came to power in Libya in 1969. In 1970, Sterling again tried to raise a mercenary force uh, featuring many former members of the SAS to go and free uh, 150 Libyan rebels in the hope of fomenting a, a revolution against Gaddafi. This incurred the wrath of um, the American government and then the British government. Sterling once more ignored them. And in the end, the, the Italian had to arrest the, uh, uh, the Muslims when they uh, uh, came to Italy prior to launching their operation. So he really was dragging the name of the SAS if not into the gutter, he was certainly damaging it. And I think it's instructive that in the late, I think it was 1979, the then director of the uh, uh, SAS, um, Peter de la Billier, who was later become quite well known during the first Gulf War, uh, wrote to the Daily Telegraph to, to say, we are, because there's been so much adverse publicity about the SAS, we're not uh, a paramilitary union, unit, we are a regiment within the British Army. Um, and, um, and really that, that, that whole, um, uh, the, the start of that 
degradation of their of their reputation stems back to Sterling in the 60s. Now, a year later, of course, there is the Iranian embassy siege in May 1980, and that's when uh, six uh, terrorists uh, seized 26 hostages in the Iranian embassy in South Kensington, and there's a six-day siege. And uh, at the uh, end of the sixth day, one of the hostages is killed. Margaret Thatcher, the then prime minister, sends in the SAS, and in a matter of minutes, captured on, on global TV, they end the siege. And the, those images of, of black-clad men abseiling down the, the, the pristine white uh, exterior of the embassy captured, they captured the world's imagination. And that began really what uh, today we can call the cult of the SAS. You know, they're barely off the TV screen. There's one reality TV show after another. I mean, you know, uh, an entire rainforest has been pulped to, to make books about the, uh, the SAS. And of course, Sterling jumped on that bandwagon and once more was able to a new generation to, to sell himself as as the founder of the SAS and their greatest ever fighter. Uh, th there's one film that was made in the wake of, of the Iranian embassy siege, which I cannot help but love, is uh, Who Dares Wins with Lewis Collins. Um, but, yeah, uh, I think that's right. Yeah. Um, so one other <laughs> thing I wanted to ask, because I know we're running out of time now, um, but Sterling's activities in the 1970s he didn't particularly like the Harold Wilson government um, viewing them as as rather too left-wing for his liking and could you talk a little bit about the organization that he was involved with in essentially we're, we're talking close to a military coup here aren't we during the 70s well that's certainly how it was um, uh, styled by the Labour government and and the uh, much of the or the press at the time. That's right. In in 90, the early 1970s, we had the uh, it was a time of great economic strife. Britain was a sick man of Europe, and there was a, a groundswell of opinion that Britain was going to the dogs, and it was the socialists were were within months of seizing power. The first um, figure to 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 warn of, of such an event was General Sir Walter Walker who in the early 60s had become something of a, of a military celebrity for um, leading uh, British forces in Borneo against insurgents. And in 1994, he formed uh, the Civil Assistance, which was um, funded by public donations. And it was a sort of, a, I mean, how would you describe it? It, it was a, like a, 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 a not a militia, that's too dramatic, but it was usually ex-military types who feared a communist takeover and signed up to almost like a, uh, a home guard in the event of a communist takeover of Britain. Sterling then jumped on the bandwagon and formed GB75. Now, the difference between the two was that his was funded privately by wealthy businessmen, many of his, of his friends. And this was, this I think probably is, does fit the description of a private army. And it was to um, seize power 
from the or seize back power in the event that the the hard left would take control of Britain, and um, they would then um, they were uh, trained. They were going to start training to in in urban warfare, ready for when the the communists uh, controlled Britain. Now, when this was uh, revealed in the summer of 1974, it caused an immense hoo-ha. It was labelled politicians as a quasi-fascist organisation. Sterling was described as Colonel Blimp in many tabloids. And I think it was very much unprepared for the furor that erupted because he, for many years, he'd interfered in the the politics in, as we just said, in, in likes of Yemen and, uh, uh, and in Kenya and Oman and uh, southern southern Africa. Uh, and here he was meddling in the uh, domestic politics of Britain. And um, it caused a, yeah, a, a, a scandal, really. And, and so Sterling quickly disbanded his organization, GB75. Uh, that was uh, G75 was when he he thought in 1975 that the uh, the communist uprising would take place, and it um it just petered out, and uh, and that was uh, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose in a way it was another good example of of Sterling thinking to himself in the perhaps in the in the the, the bar of whites, my goodness, for coming up with this with an idea. Um, and but not thinking it through. And I think this was characteristic of Sterling throughout his life. He had a very fertile imagination, particularly when it came to promoting himself. Um, and um, but I think it was Peter Sterling, I his brother, who I quote in the book, saying that the thing with David was that he needed to be controlled. And I think that's that's so true throughout his life. And Bill Sterling was was able to control him in the early days of of his military career um and then when when he left to, to go back to britain in 1941 sterling became increasingly uncontrollable because he just didn't listen to people and um, um and and so i mean that that links quite quite uh, dovetails quite nicely into the the embassy siege because in the late 70s yet again David Sterling was a man without a mission, a man without a purpose. And he was still relatively what he'd have been in 60. So still relatively young. And of course, the, the embassy siege meant that for the last decade of his life, he died in 1990. He was knighted in 1989 for services to, to the military, that he was able to, to, to live once more off the, the SAS fame, but in, in reality, the fame of others. So I wanted to ask one final question of you, Gavin, and, and that's really um, your your book is is certainly a new interpretation or, or a new history uh, of David Sterling, the founder of the SAS. And I wondered um, what you think you'll get, uh, what kind of blowback you'll get from the SAS themselves. Do you think this is going to be a challenge for you? Well, I mean, I certainly uh, I, I hope it's not a book that. Uh, upsets anyone. It's uh, impeccably researched, if I do say so myself. It's a fruition of my, my, the first SAS veteran I interviewed was Malcolm Pladel, the doctor in 1942. Uh, I interviewed him in 1998. So that's nearly quarter of a century. 
um, I certainly what the the evolution of the SAS in the Second World War uh, is extraordinary from being a unit of 66 uh, officers and men in the summer of 1941 to ending as a brigade of 2,500 men, uh, two regiments, two French regiments and a Belgian company and uh, is testament to the caliber of officer and, and men who served in the SAS and um, they achieved very impressive results in Sicily and Italy and in France in particular I think in the summer of 1944 parachuting into occupied France and then training and organizing the Mackey and then with the Mackey um, uh, launching coordinated campaign of guerrilla warfare which which really did hinder the Germans as they sought to reinforce the Normandy battlefield that's superb um, and Eisenhower quite rightly commended them for their for their work but that was achieved without sterling if you actually look at the SAS in for the first year of their existence take away Paddy Main and to a lesser extent Bill Fraser the other one of the other great figures uh, and they achieved little certainly with because he was just uh, incompetent and so I would like to think that I um, really perhaps revising the revision, revisionist i.e David Sterling who was the first to, to revise the SAS history with the Phantom Major in 1958 hence my book The Phony Major um, and he then set about quite willfully and shamelessly denigrating Paddy Main diminishing the role of his brother Bill Sterling um, for no other reason than to uh, promote himself. Uh, that's unforgivable. And I hope very much that this book will rehabilitate Paddy Main and also reveal why Bill Sterling should be regarded as the father of British Special Forces and not his brother, David. Well, Gavin, thank you. It is impeccably researched. It's a, a, a great read and it's a almost a, I don't know, it's a real tribute to Paddy Main. I think he, he comes across this as, as the, the, the real star, him and Bill. Um, so I really do recommend this um, fantastic story. Thank you very much. So, Gavin, thanks very much. Uh, books out it's now. Been Books and I books out maybe twenty. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it'll be out by the time uh, our yeah. listeners are listening. Yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah. Well, thank you very much, uh, Ollie, because it is important for me to 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 explain um, the way I think I have in the last hour. The um, I suppose going behind the scenes in a way, and um, that it's not a salacious, sensational, sensationalized account of the. Of, of David Sterling's life or the wartime history of the SAS and uh, and so I, I appreciate the the platform uh, to to put that across and I hope that uh, if people do buy the book and do read it they will agree with me that I've um I've helped uh, rehabilitate Paddy Main. I think you have thanks Gavin thank you very much Ollie
Well, there you have it. And now the truth is out there about the founding of the SAS. Next week, I'll be speaking to Damien Lewis all about the incredible story of Josephine Baker, the French resistance agent. Until then, thank you and good night.